so you are just for the people listening at home, literally wearing an Iron Man helmet. Now, mind you, the faceplate is flipped up right now, but yep. is it really that comfortable that you can wear this like for more than just a gag? Actually, it has uh, a padding inside, a soft padding inside. So it's actually not uncomfortable, but it's all right. Yeah. I'm I'm looking at you. I'm feeling skeptical as I look as I look at this. Like I'm I'm like <laughs> I I feel my cheekbones aching. I also have a theory, and uh, my theory is that you wear this from time to time to justify the expense of this to your wife. Funny thing is, my wife actually bought this, so I don't have to justify. <laughs> what? Okay, I I'm not gonna pick it up, but I have on the other side of my desk a Lego Batwing that's the size of a manhole cover that my wife bought me as an anniversary present because she saw me looking at it more than once in the Lego store. And she's like, mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing he wants, but will never buy for himself. And she was right. Like I would never buy that for myself, but now I've have it. And it's, it's huge. Like it takes up space, but, but you can't wear it. Right. It's just like a display piece. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, it's the bat plane from the 1989 Batman. It's massive. Oh. Like if I were to pick it up, um, it, it's like, bigger than my torso you know it's it's huge um so yeah that's that's a fun thing but yeah i also see that you have a cyberpunk uh, 2077 gaming chair well yeah there you I go just a razor gaming chair but i do have the cyberpunk 2077 controller because funny I'm thing is every, every time people point out this i would tell them that i've never played the game before it's you're just, missing out it's actually good now yeah, the thing is, uh, I've never been good with FPS uh, because I get motion sickness and stuff. Uh, mm. And when the game, and when I was looking for a gaming chair, this design was the only one that looked really cool. Because if you look, take a look at the back, it has this little dragon. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, that's that's the uh, okay. So deep cut. That's the logo for Samurai, which is see, it's on the back of the controller too, which is huh. the metal band that Keanu Reeves' character Johnny Silverhand played in in like 2022 in the context of the game. So nice. he is a uh, rocker slash anarcho terrorist who is opposing the sort of uh, the corpos, the corporations that run Night City, which is a fictionalized California city. And I didn't realize this, that game is actually based on like a pen and paper RPG from the early 90s. And oh. um, yeah, when uh, CD Projekt Red was looking for follow ups to The Witcher 2, like now, obviously, we're well past Witcher 3 at this point. They uh, reached out to the creator and said, hey, we really like this. We're, we know a lot about your property and stuff. We would love to develop it into a game. And it took them a very long time. And as everyone knows, uh, that knows, if you know about the game at all, upon initial release, it was a disaster. Like it, it's it was one. Of, OK, I've only pre-ordered two games in my life ever. And both times it was a massive mistake. The first one was No Man's Sky, which was a space game that was advertised as travel the galaxy, explore these planets. When they delivered it, it was basically just empty, uh, which some yep. people say about Starfield now to a degree. But uh, the second game I did that for was Cyberpunk 2077, because based on the, you know, sort of the previews, the hype of the game, it looked like the most amazing thing ever. I had a PlayStation 4 when I got it, and it was unplayable on that generation of console. It was essentially made for the next generation. But most people didn't have those yet, and they hadn't created a release yeah. of it for those yet. So, um, yeah, now it's great. Like, they just released the first expansion, like, two years in or whatever, and the game runs smoothly. 
It's mostly functional. There's still bugs that are hilarious, but you know, it's great. Yeah, it took them quite a while to get to this stage. I mean, I was I was um, watching my nephew play it just the other day, uh, but the motion sickness still gets me. So I don't think I'll be able to play it. Uh, but like, I mean, as as you mentioned, I think over the past maybe five to ten years, the the trend of pre-ordering games has really gone down. Like we used to pre-order games because there is a physical copy with like a good collectible and stuff like that. Uh, I was contemplating on whether I should pre-order Final Fantasy Rebirth because of the uh, character, the, the Sephiroth action figure that they have, but the pre-order price is costing to be the same as a PS5. So oh. I'm like, hmm, maybe not. <laughs> oh no. Much as I love that game, but you know, to pay, to fork out like four or 500 bucks for that, it's like, hmm, maybe not. You know, it's one of those things where even if you do it for the collectible, you might decide in a couple of years you don't care about the collectible anymore and you can probably flip it for the same value. I remember, like, what was it, a few years ago when, uh, what was it, uh, one of Elon Musk's myriad companies was like, hey, for $500, we'll send you a flamethrower. You know, and it was like, it's essentially like a garden weed torch that they just sort of put a housing on to make it look cool. Like, it's something you can buy at Home Depot for like, $40 or so. But you know, it's like a funding thing for the company. And now you you know, they people are flipping those for two, three times the value because it became a collector's item. So yeah, the collector's market is something I don't get into as a kid of the 90s. Um, back when you know Marvel was in its heyday before it declared chapter 11 bankruptcy and everything. Uh Marvel's actually uh, Disney is actually repeating the same cycle that Marvel did back then. Um, which is uh, they went through a, a speculative spree where they would basically pump out variant covers for everything, convincing everyone that all this would be worth a lot someday. That was one reason they burned their marketplace because once people realized that wasn't the case, they stopped buying as much. But beyond that, Marvel went on a spending spree buying lots of smaller companies, which as we can see, Disney did under a Bob uh, Chapex or a Bob Iger's first run at Disney. He bought uh, Marvel, he bought Star Wars, he bought all these things. He left when things were good, and now he's come back. And now so many of those things are souring on them as properties. And they might have to unload some. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm bouncing all over the place topic-wise here. but Yeah, it, it is. Like like they said, the, the whole journey of the Golden Age to the Silver Age and stuff like that, we, we are seeing the exact same repeat of what it used to be. Which is kind of sad because uh, the Marvel franchise is a great story. It has a lot of great story. It's just when they try to push too far and too fast, I guess, or too wide, I would say. Because now they're incorporating TV and you know uh, all the different uh, mediums. But it's, it's hard for the mainstream viewers to catch up on it. Like if you were to ask someone to watch WandaVision. I mean, don't get me wrong, WandaVision was great. But to invest like eight hours of a time watching WandaVision before watching uh, Doctor Strange 2, it's a huge investment of time. It is. And it's one of the things like, I'm not saying I'm the only person that said this by any stretch of the imagination, but it was one of my concerns. Like as Marvel started hitting phase three and then expanding beyond that, I thought about my relationship with like comic book storytelling growing up as a kid where um, when I was young, 
you could get them anywhere. Like I could go to the grocery store and they had comic books. Now I would see the cover for something and I'd see Spider-Man. I'm like, oh, this looks awesome. It's part three of a story. You know, it's like I pick it up midway. And that was kind of what you had to be used to back then. Um, but as stuff sort of became more readily available, they would reprint stuff and put them in like trade paperbacks that you could buy at bookstores and stuff like that. People started to sort of develop the mentality. I have to know everything that's happened. Um, and it's yeah. impossible because if you're talking about DC characters, they've had a publication history since the thirties. Marvel's had a publication history since the sixties, but actually that's not really true because many of those characters like Captain America existed before there was a Marvel. Like people think yeah. Stanley created all that. He didn't create all of it he created much of it um and even then it was co-created you know he sort of wrote down concepts and the artists did half to two-thirds the work um but yeah it's like i remember talking with a friend from the data community and he was getting really into spider-man it's like i really want to read this story but i have to read these like five stories before that like you really don't like you could just read it and understand oh there's other things this connects to that i don't know like i remember uh like the indiana jones movies like well, well, the three of them, we'll say there's only three. Um, when you watch an Indiana Jones movie, you can watch them in any order because it's it doesn't matter, um, even though there is a sequence to them. And that's not even the order they were released in. Um, but there's clearly lots of connections this character has to other stories and stuff that they hint at. And you're just like, oh, that's cool. There, there's more to this that exists than beyond what's on screen. And that's just sort of the accepting it. But like, so the sort of the completionist mentality or in the case of like Dr. Strange, like you were saying, like if you didn't watch the first two Dr. Strange movies, probably Avengers Endgame, eight hours of WandaVision and some other stuff, you're like, what is even happening in this movie? Like, I don't, I don't understand, you know? Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where um, much like a lot of comic books, like X-Men comic books are basically unreadable. Like, unless you are the hardest core of fans that's willing to do a lot of research, understand a lot of lore, or you get a writer who is so elegantly and carefully navigating 60 plus years of history of these characters, you know, it's incomprehensible for anyone to wade into. And I think that's where a lot of Marvel's movies and shows have reached, where it's like, okay, well, you can't just jump in. You'd better go do a bunch of homework. But most people, you know, especially after we've we're, we've passed the cultural mandate for Marvel, like leading up to Avengers Infinity War and Endgame, your grandma went to see that. Like I'm exaggerating slightly, but like <laughs> everyone was seeing those. We're well past that now. Like they wrapped up the big story like they didn't leave any threads hanging. So now they're trying to figure out what to do next. And they don't have a seemingly don't have a plan. Yeah. And like the whole the whole narrative of them going to the multiverse is really messy because while it worked kind of in the comics, they had a lot of years to build up that cohesive story. And I guess that's also why like Fundamania was such a flop because like it was just all over the place. One of the tricky things with I'm just going to say IP because that's what Marvel's characters are essentially. They're they're really really valuable intellectual property. Is you can't ever really take anything off the board. Like you don't want to say Iron Man's gone forever. Like Robert Downey Jr has obviously retired from the role, but like you can't really do that. And they 
did that in a way with some of their biggest players at the end of that phase, meaning they're sort of trying to pull together C and D list characters, oftentimes with C and D list actors that people have less attachment to, and hoping that audiences get as excited for that as they did when Robert Downey Jr. was Iron Man. And it's like, that's the thing with comic books. It's the writers have, well, if you're talking about like mainstream comic books, like Marvel and DC, like if you're right, if you've created your own independent comic book for image or something, you can kill off a character for good. That's totally fine. Like Walking Dead killed characters off all the time. Like not yep. a big deal. That was baked into the equation, but you cannot kill Batman for good. Like Batman has been killed like a dozen times and everyone knows when Batman is dead. That just means we thought of a story we wanted to do where either Batman is dead or Batman is seemingly dead. He's going to be back in 18 months because he is the single biggest character we have at this company. We can't get rid of Batman. No, you can't. <laughs> so you work for 2K Games, which is a uh, which is a gaming publisher. And I think for yep. a lot of people that are unfamiliar with like video games as an industry, they might be confused as to what a publisher is. Like, do you want to explain that or you want me to jump into it? Yeah, I think that that'd be great. So um so games are created by developers or studios. So they usually have like a group of creative people, uh game design, level designers, where they actually make the game. Publishers, on the other hand, uh, are kind of like salesmen, like in, in layman terms. So they look out for studios that they think would sell well uh, or make games that sell well. And they either purchase a, a the IP from them or they enter into an agreement uh, on a number of slated games. So us as publisher, what we do is that uh, we do own a couple of studios uh, like... Uh, like uh, VC, uh, and they do games like NBA, uh, WWE, PGA, uh, sorry, PGA's HB Studios, uh, and we have agreement with uh, Gearbox that does Borderlands and stuff like that. So on studios that we have uh, full ownership of, uh, we kind of control their development process and stage. So we tell them that we want a game that releases on an annually annual oh, the by the way the 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 mass is voice activated so sometimes it <laughs> just what? Yeah. Yeah it's it's kind of funny. Maybe I should just switch it off so it doesn't respond. You're you're killing me. Like I'm 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 watching you in an Iron Man mask for this entire thing and it's just surreal. <laughs> yeah it's funny. So um so we publish games and we kind of uh, set up all the marketing campaigns, uh, making sure that the boxes are in retail spaces. And we do everything on social media to kind of promote the game. So the developers would just focus on getting the game uh, done in time for release and we'll take care of like the rest of it. So That's they cool. kind of split the revenue. Uh, you know, different studios have uh, different contract base some goes by like you know 70 30 some 50 50 60 40 there's there's a whole range of different contract terms yeah but i know yeah uh, that's that's the gist of it i know as a publisher 2k has put out some of my favorite game franchises like i love the xcom series bioshock borderlands um i'm not much of a sports game guy although like i obviously like i have had some over the years and stuff but 
Um, one of one of my uh, more recent um, revisits as a game was something published last year. It was uh, published but not developed by 2K, which is The Quarry, um, which I don't know if you're super familiar with it. It's like a... We actually published that. Oh, you did? Yeah. 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 We, we had a, a kind of like a contract with Supermassive. Yes. And we kind of published that game. Yeah. Yeah, because I know they're doing a lot more stuff, I think, seemingly under their own umbrella. But I know that one w uh, came out through uh, your team, which uh, probably explains uh, the greater budget than a lot of their independent releases. But I mean, if if you're looking for a fun game to play as you're going into this Halloween season, The Quarry is excellent. It's like a summer camp based thriller horror um, with a lot of recognizable character actor faces in it. And uh, essentially, it's a sort of 10 chapter game where you're trying to navigate these camp counselors uh, through something that happens at a summer camp and any single one of them can die. Like you there's there's apparently an ending where every single one of your characters doesn't make it. And there's there's endings where every single one of your characters does. I've played it. I played it last year and I played it again this year. It's not super long, but I fixed a lot of the mistakes I made the first time and then lost a lot of characters I didn't get through the first time. So it's kind of fun in the sense that you're getting to uh, it's like you're watching your favorite summer camp horror movie, but you're the one that's making the choices. Like, do you go through the trail in the woods or do you go on the boardwalk? Like, which one's it going to be? It's kind of playing a live action of uh, I know what you did last summer. It really is. Like, that's a good analogy. it is. Um, one of my favorite uh, characters to show up in it is uh, Ted Raimi, who's the director, Sam Raimi's brother, who's like he's in most Sam Raimi movies in some capacity. And he sort of has a he's a really good voice for delivery and is a sort of familiar character actor that appears in a lot of stuff and like small roles. But one of my favorite things he's done was not even like a movie. It's Bruce Campbell, who's the star of Sam Raimi's Evil Ted movies and is a well-known like B movie actor. Um, wrote a book called uh, Make Love the Bruce Campbell Way, which is a fictionalized story about him uh, like co-starring in a romantic comedy with Richard Gere. And the audiobook of it is like a radio play where they've got different actors and sound effects. And Ted Raimi does a lot of different voices in that. And that was a really, you know, roundabout way to say, uh, play the quarry. But it's great. I've actually never seen that, but I'll check it out. It sounds it sounds really cool. So, like, obviously, you're involved in the gaming industry for a living, but you also uh, sort of have delved into that as a data project with um, Tina, Tina Covelli and Will Sutton with the Games Night Biz project. How did that come about? And, like, how did you three end up coming together on that? Oh, that's a funny story. Um so back when Tina and I, Tina and I are cosmates, so we actually took a master's together uh, from Maryland Institute of College Art. So uh, the master's was on data visualization and uh, analytics. So over there, we learned things like cognitive theories, creating user persona, uh, and one of the tools that we used was Tableau, uh, which was after we actually learned uh, Adobe. Uh, which kind of blew our mind because like creating a data viz in Adobe takes a lot of work. Yeah. So when we were introduced to Tableau, it was like, hey, this actually is so much easier. And we started to get more involved because uh, much of our projects were, uh, you know, we have to deliver a data viz uh, using Tableau. Uh, and funny thing, I actually got 
a vis of the day for one of the projects that I did, which was really awesome. Um, and I'm really honored to have that as kind of my first foray into the, the data fam community. So I think that was also probably why Will uh, kind of pinpoint me and Tina uh, to jump on board with him. So he actually messaged uh, us, you know, he dropped us a, a message on, on Twitter X, I mean, uh, asking if we were interested in kind of jumping into this uh, new project he's kind of envisioning. And back then, Will was also quite new to the community. Uh, that was before his, uh, you know, Iron Viz champion glory days. <laughs> so, like, who is this guy? Like, I, I don't, I don't <laughs> know any of the Data Fam folks. And you know, and and he was really nice because he reached out and he said that you know, uh, he realized that me and Tina are like gamers because I work at Two K Games, and and he was trying to find like-minded folks to run this project because at the end of the day, you know, uh, you need people with passion to run the community project that you want to do. So if you kind of get someone that is only interested in making dashboards, you know, he probably wouldn't have enough passion to kind of propel games like this uh, to where we are today. Uh, and, you know, T.I. was like, wow, this sounds like a really cool project. And we just, yeah, we, we jumped in. We told him, yeah, yes. We, we, we were kind of discussing over Zoom, like before we actually gave uh, Will the, the yes answer. Uh, I was like, oh, should we do this? Like, will we be too busy with our schoolwork and stuff? But everything worked well, yeah. That's cool. I was I was really wondering like how the crew came together and all that. And I think it's one of the I appreciate that sort of in terms of projects, um, people are very entrepreneurial and like many times people find a project that they already relate to and get really involved in that and eventually maybe move into a leadership role. And in your case, you thought of something that you wanted to do and you went ahead and did it. And I think that's one of the nice things that there really is no like gatekeeping or anything. Like all you have to do is like have an idea and just go for it. Also, I'm not jealous at all between you and Will with him sort of, you know, globe trotting appearing here. And is he, I think he's coming to Singapore soon, right? Like it, it is. So we're uh, making a very special uh, uh, meetup for him. Uh, Tristan is actually going to down it as well. So we will have two superstars in our, in our talk this time. I'm not jealous at all of either of them or for you for working in the gaming industry. I've never worked in an industry that's considered cool. So like never anything with like, like swag. I worked in health nonprofit and now I work in real estate. They can't really give you real estate and there's not fun swag to go with that. And working in health nonprofit, a lot of it is uh, just feeling very sad a lot because there's patients that are very sick. So though, between those two things, um, uh, like I've never worked in a cool field, mind you, I love my work and that's why I do my fun projects on the side. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I, I was looking at your, your public profile on Tableau, uh, public before. And like, I appreciate, like you have this really interesting, like mix of topics. Like a lot of them are like topics that I would like be interested in making. Like, you know, you made like some really cool one piece stuff. Um, you did uh, an analysis of like the, the dark origins of Disney princesses, which is like. I did one on that myself with like how many of them have lost their parents, which is just shocking. Like Disney loves killing parents like um, and then you, you've got this whole other side of you, which is like I, you make really cool tip based dashboards like, hey, here are my tips for doing this. And here's how you demonstrate it. So like, you know, you recently put out your 10 hacks to make your dashboard great. And I was going through that. And I'm like, 
I think I didn't know like six or seven of these. Um, so it's really cool to just learn through interacting with someone else's work, both about, you know, learning to make yourself better, but also learning about them, you know? The funny thing about that is that I tend to this on topics that I have a lot of passion in and it kind of comes on a, a spur moment. So the, the, the princess visualization that you point out was when my two daughters uh, were starting to watch princess movies and I wanted to kind of see if there's anything I need to take note or uh, guide them uh, on this path because I, I know for a fact that some of the princesses have uh, like not so savory origins <laughs> so when I dug deeper into it it's like holy shit there's actually a lot of dark history behind how Disney came out with all these stories and the dashboard pieces uh, are truly an extension of what I do at work to be honest because uh, I run the database team uh, globally uh, as part of uh, the business intelligence team so we do a lot of dashboards for you know, MBA, WWE, Borderlands, and stuff like that. And we go through this uh, you know, phase where you are always creating the same stuff for different dashboards because we're trying to standardize and you know increase data literacy and fluency. So you need to ensure that you know your menus stay at the same place, your buttons stay at the same place, the look and feel. You can play around with it a little bit, but you know, uh, you know, KPI should be there and stuff like that. So a lot of it, I kind of thought, you know, hmm, maybe I can't share my work dashboard to the data fan because of confidential information, but I figured that I could kind of repurpose or refactor some of them to help the greater good. Yeah, I mean, that's very sensible. I think a lot of people come from that place where they have work stuff that they're proud of or tips that they know, and you can't show the version you made of that. So finding ways to, I mean, because... So many of the people that are really involved, uh, like recognize that this is sort of a collaborative industry for everyone. Everyone sort of grows and learns and moves ahead together. Like that's one of the things like I've worked in different fields of tech before. And so many times people get weird and secretive. You know, it's like they know a thing and they're not going to share it with anybody because they think that's their job security or something like that, you know, versus recognizing that your job security is your willingness to learn and grow, helping others, uh, you know, recognizing that there's always something new to get better in that you're never really done at the end of the day versus like sort of embracing a legacy technology and just sort of like, I, I'm going to hold on to this for dear life. And like, I guess until they get rid of it one day, I don't know, you know. One, one of the, one of the advice that I got from my mentors in the past was that you should never hoard knowledge because by hoarding knowledge, you are capping your limits to growth. So you can be an expert on a certain field or a very niche topic and stuff like that, but that's what you'll always be, like stuck in that role. So you want to continue to grow, you want to move to a you know a, a higher position of responsibilities you want to manage a team i mean not everyone wants to be a manager but if you want to grow into that you want to grow into a leader you need to learn how to let go and take on a broader spectrum of of knowledge because that's how you're able to help 
the you know the folks under you grow as well. So that was a very valuable lesson when I uh, first became a manager and that I got from my mentor. I think that's useful. I think like mentors are vital to sort of growth. And I, I've had good mentors and I've had bad mentors, you know, but even with the yeah. bad mentors, sometimes you learn something either from them and their examples, whether they're bad examples or even a stop clock is right twice a day. Like I've mentioned before, I had a really bad director who said he didn't like me and wasn't interested but he gave me like two really good pieces of advice. And it's like, you know what? Like those were, that was good advice. Like just because he was ineffective in a lot of other stuff and sort of crushed my morale and like made me question whether I should even be in this field. Um, like he was not wrong about these things. So sort of recognizing that, you know, it's, it's real easy sometimes to sort of be like, you know, like the teenager who's like, just pushing back against their parents. Like, no, you're just always wrong. I know everything. It's like, hey, look, even if they're wrong about stuff, recognize when they're right about stuff. Like, and, you know, also be introspective and look towards yourself and recognize when you're wrong. Like there were times in my career in the past where I was definitely the problem. You know, it's like, hey, maybe my own spirit here or my own willingness to sort of grow and improve. Like I talked about that person that's going to hang on for dear life. I've been that person in the past. And it's like, it wasn't serving me. Um, but at the time, like that's where my headset was and sort of evolving and moving beyond that is what opened up more options for me and eventually getting into Tableau and realizing like, oh, I can make anything I want. Um, and I can, I can basically, you know, I can be my own boss in a way that doesn't pay. Like I can put anything out here and like, you know, that sort of helped me. Like it helped me get better at, at doing that, but it also demonstrated to others like I'm growing, I'm getting better. I, I play well with others, like, um, and that sort of thing. And that eventually led to me being where I work now, um, which was really useful. So yeah, like don't, uh, I don't know, like I just encourage people, like I taught a class on Saturday, uh, to a, a group that's uh, upskilling in Tableau. They're learning Tableau for the first time. And one of the first things I talked about is Tableau public. I said, it might feel uncomfortable, but there's a lot of value to putting your stuff out there publicly and even more so sharing it and find other people to share their work and talk together. And I mean, just look at you and Tina and Will, like all sort of collaborating and working together. You're on three different continents, like, you know, it's, but you're all running this project together and that's really cool. And that's something we couldn't have done as easily a couple decades ago. Yeah, definitely. I think remote working has kind of changed how people work across the globe as well. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, not many companies are. There are a lot of companies are forcing their folks back to the office. Uh, which is um, uh, I don't know, like kind of like a step back. Uh, at times. Uh, but I, I I get why they want people to be in the office because sometimes you need in person interactions to kind of build the camaraderie, kind of build that team spirit and stuff like that. But I I believe there's kind of like a balance for that. I think there's definitely merit to both. And I think one of the really nice things about being open to remote work as an organization is you open yourself to a far wider talent pool. Like if you're, um, say, Houston-based, you're limited to people that live in Houston or are willing to move to Houston. What if there's some really talented folks that, say, have elderly parents or something? You know, it's like something like that where, look, I can't uproot the entire extended family and move, but I would love to work for you. You know, that it's you know, finding ways to make it work. But yeah, I, I definitely think there's a lot of value to meeting in person. I think that's why so many people value 
you know, Tableau user groups or, uh, you know, obviously whenever well, on this podcast, like this is basically a Tableau first podcast because most people I know on here, I know through that. Um, but, you know, whatever sort of your tech stack is, or even if you're just a storyteller or an artist or whatever, having some sense of community and also seeing some of those people in person, like it really enforces it and makes it real. That's why, um, you know, this podcast spun out of me uh, coming back from Tableau Conference. Like I was really invigorated by having some of those real life conversations and having conversations like this with you now wasn't something I was doing as much outside of my immediate coworkers who I saw every day, uh, which those conversations were valuable. But uh, I know I grew a lot by having exposure to a lot more ideas and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I do have a very supportive boss. Uh, but then again, I work three different time zones. <laughs> Novato time zone, Dublin time zone, and Singapore time zone. So uh, he's, he's, he's really supportive. So I'm really, I have really flexible working hours. So they don't really bother me. Uh, but they do they do uh give me shit if I turn up at meetings very late at my time. It's like, Lois, what are you doing at this time? You know, go to bed. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I had a nap in the afternoon, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're you're invested in it and you're trying to make sure everything stays on track and is successful. And I, I definitely there's definitely a balance there. And also like, you know, your leadership looking out for you too. Like I've had leadership before, like, look take the afternoon off. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, the world's not going to fall apart. And also like knowing when they say to be somewhere like, Hey, definitely. Like if you have to move stuff around, make sure to be at this meeting. So, and that's why it's like great to have that kind of working relationship where you can really trust your leadership. And you know, that they're not just going to tell you to be somewhere just for the sake of being there that, you know, you're actually getting value added from the stuff you're participating in. Definitely. So in terms of like, I was looking back through your portfolio, like I said, and I appreciate your your variety of topics and styles. Was there a project that you worked on in the past that was like, this clearly was my most difficult project that hung me up? Or have most things been relatively streamlined? Um, to be fair, my INVIS submission last year was something that I struggled a bit with because even though it was a topic that, or, or rather, even though the theme was video games or games in general, uh, and it's something that I feel very passionate about, there was this immense pressure on me and Tina. Will was, was out of it because he won and he was judging, so he didn't have any of the pressure. But Tina and I was like chatting over Twitter every day. It's like, shit, you know, I don't have a topic yet. And like, because we are the co hosts for Games Like This, a lot of folks are gonna be expecting us to do something great. <laughs> it was like, yeah, I was. I went through a lot of ideas. Um, and even wrote in my wife because she's a huge fan of Dragon Age. Uh, which is why I ended up with uh, the piece that I created. But out of all the fancy ideas that I had, uh, I had a story to tell because I could tell it from my wife's point of view because she's a huge fan of the game. She played through the game i think more than 20 times wow i don't know yeah because she played through a, a, a certain area and then she realized that you know she screwed up a interaction earlier in the game and there's no salvaging yet so she replayed it a couple of times again and it's like 
for different endings as well. So she was the kind of like the perfect specimen <laughs> that I could tell the story of Dragon Age from. Uh, and that's but but it was hard because I had to translate her passion and her ideas into uh kind of in my own own words, which was far more difficult than you know telling it something from your own experience. Right. You're trying to make sure that you're faithful to her experience and also you're explaining the this game franchise in a way that's relatable to people that are unfamiliar with it, which can be challenging. I mean, you're talking about a role-playing game, which is to a lot of people that are unfamiliar with it, like they might have a lot of preconceived notions, but also it's a densely narrative game with multiple characters that has branching storylines. So depending on the choices you make, the the story sort of pivots and you know, not much like the quarry, like people can live and die, you know, the plot lines can shift and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a it's it's really a good game. I mean, it's still waiting for Dragon Age 4, but the studios have been pushing back. I don't know if the game is gonna get released. <laughs> well, you know, it's uh it. <laughs> one of the upsides is that that while that franchise might be, you know, uh sort of going through an awkward phase most things come back eventually and also there's oftentimes new surprises that come out that scratch a lot of those itches that people enjoyed so Baldur's Gate 3 might be a good alternative for her to check out in the meantime or something along those lines if she enjoys sort of like the high fantasy role playing game or go back I and did. play um uh Witcher 3 Witcher 3 um is huge and uh, one of the best selling games of all time yeah, I, I did recommend her to play Baldur's Gate, but she didn't like the battle system. <laughs> I I get it. Like my wife, uh, my wife is not a gamer, but she loves YA novels, uh, and she listens to them primarily as audiobooks because she's on the go. She's an attorney. She's a mom. She's always driving somewhere. Uh, so she, you know, or, or when she's like doing chores around the house, she's got her audiobooks on, and she's very particular about many aspects, including narration, subject matter, and, and, and all that. So um, she she is incredibly specific about what she is looking for, and I don't understand it. Let me ask you this. What, uh, how did your wife feel about the end result? Did she, did it, you know, did it sort of meet her expectations? Yeah, she was, she was pretty pleased with it uh, because, uh, you know, it's Dragon Age, and like I captured most of her, emotions in the dashboard i would say so she was really pleased with it does she understand what you do for a living like does stuff like that help her sort of wrap her head around what you do or did she already sort of understand what you do so the thing is my wife is a police officer so she saves lives for a living so anything that doesn't save life is yeah not as important <laughs> as so <laughs> Sometimes when I create a vis and I'm really excited, like for example, the, the one that I did on One Piece, I, I showed it to her. It's like, you know, there's this network graph I could use Tristan's tool and create this. And it's just like, well, that's cool. Yeah, but do you save any life today? I'm like, no. That's not real. <laughs> like, come on. Like, yeah, she's she's not being fair. <laughs> no, that's that's like if you're an ER doctor, like it, you know, what, what's your spouse going to do for comparison to, to, you know, hold up against? I mean, my wife's an attorney. Like, clearly what she does is more important than what I do. Mind you, I used to work at a hospital that cured, uh, 
you know, super rare pediatric cancer conditions. So that's about all I could have held up there as comparison. But yeah, no, I get it. Like, you know, my wife's like, I'm trying to help these people get custody of, of their kid or whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's really, that's really important. I found out why this particular site had too many work order overages this past quarter. <laughs> but yeah that's i i always find it interesting yeah that's interesting that she's a police officer was that her passion like she always wanted to be a police officer or uh is it some some field that she found her way into by other means Nah, she, it, it was her first job after graduating so she's been here for like the past 10 to 15 years yeah at least like okay I, I don't win arguments because my wife clearly has better sort of logical reasoning skills to navigate through these things than me. Like her profession is all about finding cracks in reasoning and like, you know, verbal jujitsu. You're fortunate <laughs> that like spouses don't regularly have like, you know, Aikido standoffs because like you, you would be losing on that end. Like you're fortunate that that's not something you have to contend with. Like for me, like on my birthday, I think I get to win an argument. Although my when my wife was pregnant with my uh firstborn, she attended a negotiation workshop. So they say that you know, whatever that the mom gets uh, you know, exposed to, it kind of gets transferred to the kid. And I couldn't say it's I mean it's it's true, it's all true. So my firstborn is really good at negotiation. So she gives me crap for it <laughs> every single day. That's uh, that's a lot. I mean, my my oldest isn't just turned twelve recently, and she she has her mother's enthusiasm for debating things, but also none of the like skill. So she'll just come <laughs> at you and just automatically choose the opposite viewpoint of you just so that she can like debate you on a topic. You know, like, I'm like you believe this i know you don't like why are we doing this right now <laughs> nah, but kids will always be kids kids are kids uh so what has you excited about data visualization right now obviously you know you've got your work products which are mostly internal and uh not for consumption by the outside <laughs> are there any like personal projects you're working on or stuff you see happening in the community that's gotten you excited recently I mean, I have a list uh, in Google Docs whenever I have uh, an idea, uh, and that list is always growing. <laughs> I haven't gone through the entire list, but the the 10 hacks that I put out recently had gotten really good traction. And I think probably people are looking forward to you know more things that they can apply at work. So maybe you know I'll, I'll look into what other things that I can replicate from my work uh, to help the community. I think that's great. I think, um, like I was saying, a lot of times it's hard to translate that stuff. So even stuff like pointing out to most people, the difference between SGVs and PNGs, like at the small scale, you might use them for icons and like, you know, with the upper right corner to open a container or something, you don't think about it, but PNGs don't scale like SVGs. So if you had to make that icon a lot bigger, it's going to pixelate and look ugly and look, you know, low quality. I actually found that out by accident uh, because I, I saved the wrong file format and I imported it and didn't realize that it was an SVG. I was like, hmm, okay, this looks a bit different. Like it looks really crystal clear. 
And I remember that the images that I scaled used to turn out very pixelated. So I went to dig into it. It's like, hmm, okay, so there's a clear difference between these two. You know, I'm working, uh, Lisa Tresca and I are still working on our project together. We're slowly inching there between me having deathly ill cats and teaching and her having sick kids and teaching because uh, we're both co-teaching this class now. Um, uh, we're, we're both uh, inching forward. And I realized I designed some elements for our project in Figma and I exported them as PNGs. And when I saw your 10 hacks, I'm like, got to export them as SVGs. Got to make sure these things are crisp. Because uh, we're doing some fun <laughs> stuff with uh, with shapes and images and stuff as part of as part of our project. It's sort of outside my wheelhouse, and um, it's it's something oh, I don't typically on do. That, if you have a custom font within your, uh, I mean, within the the frame that you're trying to export as SVG, it may not render properly unless you rasterize it as a shape layer instead of a font. So, quick tip for you. That, that is a good quick tip. I mean, like, that's the stuff I don't think of. Like, I am not, like, sort of uh, image first in a lot of these, like, sort of uh, graphic editing tools. So, like, understanding a lot of those things. And, I mean, even just building stuff in Figma, I've done it for T-shirts, and now I'm doing it for a business stuff. I am doing this the wrong way. Like, I have not properly taken Figma courses. I am brute forcing my way through it, and I'm figuring stuff out as I go. So I'm learning things, but I'm probably learning a lot of stuff the wrong way. So it's uh, any any advice uh, given is always appreciated. Uh, Figma, I actually started on Figma after I looked at Kevin's uh, tutorials. Yeah, they, uh, Kevin Wee. Yeah, so the guy has like a whole website on how to use Figma to build dashboard images, create... Um, wireframes and mockups. So I, I learned a lot from him and I'm just kind of uh, on this kind of Figma convert path. So like I use Figma a lot in my work as well to create like mockups and, and wireframes because building a dashboard and getting feedback from your stakeholders at work is a lot of work, right? And often in times your stakeholders want or rather their requirements change and they want certain things to be done this way and that way and it takes a lot of effort to change it in tableau so by kind of using figma mockup we can easily change that and have a sign off from them saying okay this is how the final dashboard will look like no more changes after this if you want we'll push back the production date <laughs> and most of the time they're they're pretty fine with that let me tell you, like project close as well as project charter, like your requirements gathering in the beginning are so such important skills to master. Like, because if you can't figure out both ends of the project, there is no scope and there is no end. Like it just goes on forever. So unless you can actually get people to commit or at least commit to a stage like, hey, yeah. this will be the end of stage one. At this point, we've met this. We can revisit it later. We can update it and change it as you get used to it and realize you have additional needs, but you can't be in a perpetual state of development. I had a previous manager in a past life who basically refused to close projects. So something would just always be in development. So every day you come back and, you know, day two, you're redeveloping 80% of it. Day three, you're what? redeveloping 40% of it. Day five, you're developing. It was like the half-life of the project. So it's like you're never developing 0% of it. 
because you're always continually changing it. Now it's like, who is this for? Like at some point someone has to use it. Like you, it's never going to be perfect. Like that's why you, you sort of have to like, you have to close it at some point, first of all, so people can actually get used to it and figure out how it works and then figure out what they need. But also like for the poor developers, so they feel some sense of accomplishment. Otherwise, like if everything yeah. is always in development, you're just like, I have 70 projects in development right now, none of which will ever actually be complete. Yeah. Give those poor developers a break. <laughs> right like let them check something off like let them say like i completed a thing <laughs> it's like i realize the dishes are never completely done in my home but occasionally i close the dishwasher and i turn it on and at that point we did a load of dishes like it'd be like if you're you're never committing to closing the dishwasher and pressing the on button you know so you've got to have something there that's very true so before we wrap up today, is uh, is there anything you wanted to shout out or sort of anyone you wanted to talk about or, you know, talk smack or or anything like <laughs> you want to make any enemies right now? You call out Tufty. Uh, he's you know, he blocked me a long time ago, but I'm sure I can find him on LinkedIn. Ah, well, I guess I'm really, really looking forward to PC next year because I had such a good time at PC this year. I. I just wish, I just hope that uh, I'll get the necessary approval to go over there. Uh, and and I urge anyone who's thinking about it to really make plans or start planning to go to TC next year because next year is going to be at San Diego. It's going to be very different from uh, Vegas from what I heard from you guys. I think it's going to be a brand new experience for everyone. I think it's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be really different. It's uh, but I think it's gonna be great. Um, I definitely appreciate that Ryan Ate and the Tableau team got things together much earlier this year, like a full nine months out, announcing the dates, announcing not the specific location, but the geographic location. That's gonna go a long way to helping people commit budgets and uh, make travel arrangements, especially if you're traveling internationally. You can't make that call two to three months out. You gotta budget for it in advance. So I, I really appreciate uh, them jumping on that and getting on it so fast. I enjoyed meeting you there last time. And I look forward to seeing yep. you again in person and hanging out some more in uh, sunny San Diego. Yep, definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll try my best to be there. <laughs> well, I will to be honest, too. I don't, I don't enjoy the 20 hour flight over there. Uh, but the, the time spent there is really, it's really different. Like it is so life changing, I would say. I, I can't disagree with that. So I hope I see you there. I hope neither of us have to pay too much for it on our own. Let's hope uh, let's hope work uh, work pays out. Yeah, um, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, but with that, thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. 